Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Cue the Law and Order music because we're ripping from the historical headlines this week. It's episode 290 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Got to stretch our legs here. And for the first time in a while, do a comic book interview. I always love talking to amazing creators. Going to talk to Stephanie Phillips this week. She's the writer of a new book for Dark Horse Comics called The Butcher of Paris. Ripped from the headlines of historical serial killer murder mystery from the World War II era in Nazi Germany and in Paris. And, it, there, you know, there's a war going on, a serial killer on the loose. It's a really cool book, so we'll talk to Stephanie about that and a whole bunch more stuff. Plus, yes, there will be more comic book reviews this week. We'll talk about some casting news in the world of nerd news. The first couple of episodes of his dark materials. Some spoilers, some not. Plenty to get to on the show this week. Let's get those comic reviews going. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Summer Bischel from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're heading for the bags and boards or the cloud storage, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and we're heading into The Undiscovered Country. It's a book that's been, that was announced back at San Diego Comic-Con. Finally getting a chance to read it from Image Comics and all-star writing team, Scott Snatter and Charles Soule, Giuseppe Camoncoli, and... Danielle Orlandini on the art, Matt Wilson on the colors, and then Crank on the letters. Now, this is the book that, of course, we told you about back at San Diego Comic-Con. Basically, the U.S. has closed its borders, and there's a great timeline in the book, actually, that tells you what led up to this happening. Now, the rest of the world, by the way, is dealing with a deadly virus that could wipe out all of humankind. Now, they actually receive a message that could give them hope so they could so they put a team together and go on a diplomatic mission to, you know, minor spoiler alert here, to the United States. Now, remember, the United States border has been closed for decades. Nobody's been there. Nobody knows what's going on inside. Now, entering a place that's been closed for that long is ultimately an, ex- is an ultimate unexpected endeavor. What they find when they get inside probably isn't what any one of them could have really imagined or or even I would have really imagined. Although there's always a danger in doing something like that, but there's always a, you kind of don't know what you're going to get. Now they might find out that their mission goes far beyond what they came there for this group that, that, that is set out to this, to this place. Now the premise of this story to me was always the most interesting part, but that kind of, but the, but the direness of the circumstances really turns up the intensity of this book because you get to see what this virus is doing and how rapidly it's doing what it's doing, and, and that sort of you know pushes the panic button a little bit into well you know we don't really know if this is the right thing to do, but we got to do it anyway because we have to do something, and then once they get there, the tension doesn't stop. At all. That much I could tell you. Now, the team and the roles are really clearly f- defined, but 
There seems to be some clear focus, though, on Dr. Charlotte Graves and her brother, Major Graves. Those are the two characters that seem to be, the book seems to be pushing us to the most. Now, they might just end up being the keys to both problems that are present in the story. You, we know what one of them is, and the other one is kind of, kind of reveals itself towards the end of the book, and I definitely don't want to spoil that. As far as the art goes, things are pretty basic, actually, until they enter the U.S., and then things really start to pop. That's I'm not saying the art wasn't good. There just wasn't much of an opportunity for the art team to really shine early on because it's a lot of stage setting, just a lot of really normal settings and things like that. And that's not to say that that's not a necessary part of a book. I'm just saying, you know, there was, there was nothing that really made you go, wow, this art is awesome, because there really wasn't a chance to do that, it's kind of like a football player who goes from blocking for a running back to catching a touchdown pass in the fourth quarter. That's how I kind of liken this: is that, yeah, well, you know, you're used because you used as a necessary instrument early on, and then things really open up for you as the book progresses. So that's kind of how I would describe the art in this book. I still am very intrigued by the premise, especially the ending. I think that it's going to be very interesting to see. You know, are these focuses going to diverge or are we going to come together into something that's going to actually both things are interconnected? That's one thing I want to see answered in the next issue. So, yeah, I'm going to put this in the poll box on faith alone that this thing is going to just continue to grow and be awesome. Undiscovered country from Image Comics. You know, I'm a fan of the magicians and you might know that. Boom Studios has a brand new comic with brand new magicians, and it is out right now. As a matter of fact, Magicians Number 1 from Arcadia and Boom Studios. Lev Grossman, of course, creating the characters. Lila Sturgis back writing. Of course, she wrote Alice's Story coming up, you know, that, that actually happened not too long ago, that graphic novel. Pius Bach on the art. Gabriella Casata on the colors. Mike Fiorentino on the letters. And Christina Kalida on the cover art. I'm sorry if I butchered anybody's name there. I, you know, it's just kind of what I do on the show, unfortunately. Now, just I want to once again let you know this is a new story with new students and a new professor, actually. I'm just going to put this out there right now. It's going to be really hard for me to tell you too much about this book without spoiling something that's really kind of major. And if you're a fan of the Magician's show or books, you'll understand why it's a big deal. Because here's the deal. These aren't just any new students and any new professor. It's very much going to be considered, they're very much going to be considered outsiders at break bills and something that sort of breaks the mold. That much I can tell you. Now, the reason for that, I won't spoil. But I will say the other students, or at least some of them anyway, I won't exactly give them a warm welcome. Now, we do see Dean Fogg in this book. He's actually the one that decided to do this, and we don't know why until a little bit further on into the book. Now, it's almost like a battle between those who consider themselves classically trained being treated as the same as working class, where both thinks the other is kind of the lesser. So there's there's a really push and pull there. As a matter of fact, there's one douchebag student named Andy in this book who kind of embodies the extreme of the, the, the classically trained and, you know, the haves and the have-nots, basically. But yet the have-nots actually have a very large skill set as well. So it turns out that the class that they'll be taking from this new professor is something that they can not only all agree on, but it's super top secret. 
and very, very interesting as to why it's necessary. Now, the bickering won't end without a little magic show, literally and figuratively. You know, it's kind of a test to, you know, see what the newbies have. Now, the problem is things get a little out of hand. You know, it's kind of a can you top this sort of thing. And that leads to the cliffhanger that we get in the first issue. Now, I can't spoil what the big reveal is in this book. Again, I really don't want to do that. But what these new characters are, it's something that's very familiar to fans of the magicians, and you'll know what they are, and but you're not necessarily going to know why they're brought in right away and where this is going to go. Now, it's something that will likely intrigue you and add a nice little twist to the world of Break Bills and the magician's story overall. There's still a bit of why that needs to be answered, though, sooner rather than later. And I can't, again, I can't tell you what it is, but you'll you'll understand again once you read the book. The art in this book, by the way, is good, but I gotta give it, I gotta tell you, the colors are really what makes things pop and when it matters the most. And I mean, when you're talking about a book dealing with magic, you've gotta have great colors. I know I've said that before and I'll say it again. And Gabrielle Casada really, really pushes that to the brink and and does a great great job of making these things huge when they need to be i mean the the overall art is good but if you didn't have a good colorist there would be not a whole lot that you could do about that so i'm going to throw this in the poll box as well a couple good ones this week undiscovered country number one from image comics and the magicians number one from arcadia and boom studios that's going to do it for what we're reading up next we're going to dive into some dark materials hbo's new series We'll have a little bit of spoilers and a little bit of not next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, my name is Rafael Albuquerque and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. After their first big premiere with The Watchmen, it's time for another one from HBO. And that is His Dark Materials based on the Golden Compass or Northern Light series, depending on where you're at in the world. And yeah, the first episode actually aired on Monday. Second episode not airing until Monday, November the 11th. But I'm going to go ahead and give you spoiler-filled on the first episode, and we'll talk about the second episode with uh, with no spoilers because I got a chance to see it a little bit early, so we will talk about that. Now, yeah, basically, this story centers around a lot of different things. Again, some spoilers will be dropped for the first episode if you haven't gotten a chance to watch it yet. But it's really, really interesting because it follows this really fantasy-driven world where basically every human has an animal companion with them that represents their soul called their demon. So your soul actually lives outside of your body and your demon has to be kept close to you and basically it can talk to you almost like a voice of reason type of thing. It's almost like everybody's got their own little Jiminy Cricket, but the Jiminy Cricket, it looks different for everybody. Like Lyra, the main character's hers, seems like a ferret that can also transform into other things. And it's different for adults, too, because your your demon eventually evolves into its final form. And you find out what that's going to be. Actually, there's a scene in the first episode where one of the one of the one of the kids, you know, basically becomes a man because their demon reaches its final form. There was a there's a big ceremony. They make a big deal out of it in the certain case. So it's really, really interesting. But the basis of this story surrounds on this girl named Lyra who there's a prophecy saying that there is a girl that will upset the balance of power in the world for the governing body, who is the magisterium, who basically is the, you know, your quintessential governing body slash religious body that's oppressive 
to their people and kind of rules over them in a very, you know, let's just say not so nice way. So, but there's a prophecy that says that there's a young girl that will come and upset that balance of power at some point. They don't say it's Lyra by name. We know differently. It's pretty obvious for a lot of reasons. Now, we actually do get to see her as a baby, and we get to see James McAvoy's character, uh, Azrael, kind of deliver her to Oxford College to keep her safe. Now, I don't know if he knows what her kind of what her calling is or anything like that. But this is her uncle. We find that out a little bit later on. Then we see Lyra a little bit more grown up and about, I'd say, like maybe 12 years old or so. And we see her running around Oxford. I mean, she's very spunky. She's very adventurous. She just wants to learn more and she just wants to do more. And she has her little friend Roger that she runs around with as well. And, you know, they just, it's basically, you know, young kids talking about life sort of thing and just having fun. And, but she kind of stumbles into something, and you you see that when her uncle shows up, and her uncle's kind of promised to take her to the North. And I don't know what it is about HBO and stories about the North, but we just wrapped up one story about the North. Hopefully this one will be a little less intense. But Lyra wants to go to the North with Azrael, but Azrael might not make it there because, again, very much spoiler-filled here, the master of of Oxford actually tries to poison her uncle, and she sees it, and she alerts him to it, and and nobody seems to know why this is, and he doesn't necessarily reveal that he knows that the master tried to kill him, but Azrael's discovered something, this special particle called dust, and a lot of this story centers around what this dust is. Apparently, it's attracted to adults, but not to children, and there might be another world that exists that Azrael has discovered. Now, this is freaking out the folks at Oxford because they're basically allowed to do what they do because the magisterium allows it. You know, again, the oppressive state allowing something to go on as long as they decide that it's okay and you're not going against their wishes sort of thing. So the the folks at Oxford don't want anybody to know about what Asriel's doing. Asriel knows that what he's doing is going to upset the magisterium. So he tries to literally take off in this flying ship and you know, he wants Lyra, Lyra wants to go with him, and he's like, no, I don't, basically, I don't have time for you, little girl, so it's kind of a dick move on his part, and he's kind of a jerk anyway, from the get-go, you really kind of see that, and he's definitely one of those people that's sort of all wrapped up in their work and what they're doing, but it's certainly, there's certainly the air of what he's doing is important, that doesn't necessarily mean that he should be treating her the way that he is, but he certainly seems to think that what he's doing is life or death related. And speaking of which, then you have Miss Coulter, who comes into the mix, and if you've read the books, you know that she's bad news, right? So you you automatically know that this is not a good thing. And, you know, she deals with the magisterium, so that again right there should tell you something is not really right about her. But she kind of comes and she wants to be Lyra's savior. She wants to get her out of the school. She wants to take her to where she, you know, can be she can be her assistant and she can kind of follow along and see all the things that she wanted to see. Basically giving her all the things that her uncle never was has been willing to give her. But here's the problem. Again, spoiler, her little friend Roger has been taken. Now there is a a, a myth, I don't know how you would necessarily describe them, but they're called the gobblers. And basically children are disappearing. The gobblers are basically the ones that are being labeled as responsible for these disappearances. Her little, Lyra's little friend, Roger, is one of those children 
that ends up going missing. And basically, Lyra is willing to stop at nothing to find Roger. And she, before she goes with Miss Coulter, she's given something by the master of Oxford. And it's basically a thing. It, it looks like, you know, just like the golden compass. That's exactly what it looks like. But basically, it's an alethometer. And what it does is they tell her it always tells the truth, but she can't figure out exactly how it works. We get to find out a lot about what's going on with Miss Coulter coming up later on. And, you know, something seems fishy about her and Oxford and what's going on with the Magister. Everything just seems a little weird. Even the thing with the gobblers feels weird because there's another kid that gets taken as well. And we don't really know the rhyme or the reason for that just yet in this first episode. Now, as you turn the page to the second episode, and again, while I can't give you spoilers, I can tell you we get a lot about what's going on with Lyra and Mrs. Coulter and that relationship. And basically Lyra settling into her new life in London and trying to expand her world. This is what she wanted, right? She wanted to get out of the school And she wanted to be a part of something bigger and see things that she was never able to see before. So we get to see that and we get to see her wonderful relationship with her little demon, by the way. I just love the two of them together. It's really, really a a great, great bond. And you also get to see what's going on with a couple of other different characters that get introduced into this story. We also get to see what happens when a demon is injured, I can tell you that much right now. How that affects the host body, I guess is the way you could, I, I could describe it. You get to see more about the Magisterium. We get more information on the, actually a lot more information on the Gobblers and who's behind it. We don't, we still don't necessarily get the why, but we get the who, if that makes sense. And basically, it's just a lot of, you know, Lyra being Lyra and being, you know, inquisitive and and adventurous and things like that. But there's a lot of tense moments in this second episode. While the first episode certainly has its intrigue, especially with the things that Alistair has found, there's a lot of tense moments in the second episode. There's also a lot of very uncomfortable moments in this second episode and a lot of you know, kind of anxiety-driven, a couple of anxiety-driven moments anyway, and, and you re- and things really start to sh- take shape of, okay, here's the characters that I can trust, here's the characters that I can't, and now where is the story going to go from here? I will admit to one thing, though, that there, it can be a little confusing at times, and the main point of this story is not always clear. I will say that from this. Now... I have not read the books personally, but talking to someone that has, they're certainly taking certain liberties with the story, but it seems like they're keeping within the theme of the story at least. So they're, you know, the seeds are there, the tree is just growing in a different direction sort of thing. Daphne Keene, who seems to be amazing in a lot of things, is great as Lyra. I love this character. She is one of those characters that you really, really want to root for, from start to finish. You don't want to see anything bad happen to her. You really want her to get what she deserves, and that is a better life than she had. And I love the bond between her and her friend Roger because Roger's an, an orphan. It has no one, basically. 
and she befriends him. That's her best friend, almost like her brother that she sort of grew up with in this school. And when he goes missing, that's a big deal. And you also get to see another group and they have a, they have a child that goes missing as well. And Roger knows this kid, kid the Egyptians are, are, are what the, are their name. And they are trying to track down what's going on with these gobblers and who they might be connected with. And I almost slipped up and said it, and I can't because I don't want to do any spoilers for the second episode. So I, just, just to say this is that there's not necessarily a clear path to where things are going right away, but what we do get is a lot of intrigue. It's a, it's a wonderful fantasy world. We haven't really seen, we won't really get to see a whole lot of magical elements just yet, but the, the demons, the, the, there's, a, there's some rules there, and it's a very intriguing relationship. It's a wonderful relationship between the humans and their demon, depending on the human, I guess is the best way that you could put it. And it's really cool to think that you would have an animal it's basically with you your entire life that will live as long as you live. I mean, wouldn't you want your favorite pet to live as long as you live? That would be a good, it's like a dream, right? As, as an animal lover myself, you know, if I, if, if my dogs could live as long as I did, that would be an ultimate dream for me. I would absolutely love that. So just that alone draws me into the story automatically but knowing that and that's the thing there's no big reveal really in these first couple of episodes or at least I don't think there is anyway I mean there's certainly things that that are teased that may or may not be but we don't know for sure but I don't need a huge reveal right away and that's just it I don't need you to give me something great I just need the promise that there's something that's going to be happening that's going to be big in at least the first half of this series, right? So, and that's kind of how I felt as I went through these first couple of episodes. What we with this with these first couple of episodes definitely do for me though is here's the characters that I'm supposed to love, here's the characters that I'm supposed to hate, here's who I'm going to root for, and here's who I'm going to keep my eye on. That's what this does, and you know what that does? It gives you intrigue, and that is what I need more than anything, especially. As someone who's not familiar with the source material, who wants to just enjoy this as its own thing, I need that right away. I don't have the book to draw on to know who I want to root for and see how they turn out in this show. I have to learn from the show itself. And then I can go back and read the books and see how they're different. See, you can do it either way. And I think you can enjoy this show either way because either way it looks like you're going to be getting something new. So I'm very, very intrigued by his dark materials. I'm definitely going to be watching every Monday. I don't know about you. Hopefully you're going to be keeping up with it as well, because I definitely think this is one of those appointment viewing type shows. This week, the Down and Nerdy podcast is brought to you once again by Mac Weldon. Now you've heard my experiences with Mac Weldon before. I'm going to give you another one. I went down to Miami last weekend. Even though it was November, it was still like 90 degrees. So I'm going from 50 degrees to 90 degrees. I needed to stay cool. And that's why I was so glad that I decided to throw on my Air Knit X boxer briefs from Mack Weldon. They kept me cool my entire trip. I was sweating, but I was not feeling like I like it was an oven down there, basically, is what I could tell you without going with too much TMI. But it works because it's just made better. And as a matter of fact, if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and it'll be on Mack Weldon. They'll still refund you your money 
no questions asked. So go to MacWeldon.com and enter promo code DNPOD for 20% off your first order. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code DNPOD for 20% off your first order of whether it be underwear, socks, polos. I have the Mac Weldon pants that they have on there as well. There's just so much great stuff. There's no frustration with trying to sift through a bunch of different things. They just have what you want right there, ready to go for you. And there's all kinds of great deals on how you can save money and get free shipping as well. So make sure you go to MacWeldon.com. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com and enter promo code D-N-P-O-D for 20% off your first order of Mac Weldon Premium Essential Menswear. That's going to do it for my spoiler-ish, kind of halfway spoiled review of His Dark Materials from HBO. Up next, yeah, there's plenty of nerd news to talk about and some surprises as well. So we'll give you those next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Vanessa Marshall, voice of Gamora on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy and Hera on Star Wars Rebels on Disney XD. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Could someone else find their Marvel redemption in a DC movie? It's time for nerd news. The reason I say that is Deadline came out with a report this week that Colin Farrell was in talks to play the Penguin, Oswald Cobblepot himself, in Matt Reeves's The Batman. Now, as of me recording this, this has not been confirmed yet. And I want to tread lightly here because we were already kind of bit a little bit by the whole Jonah Hill thing. And that's not happening. And, and so when you hear Colin Farrell is in talks, in talks, you know, just means talking at this point. But again, you have to admit that whether or not you enjoyed some of the movies that Ben Affleck was in as Batman, Ben Affleck's Batman was not the reason that you probably didn't like those movies, right? I thought Ben Affleck more than redeemed himself as a comic book superhero in the in a lot of the movies that he was in in DCEU. Now, Colin Farrell has a chance to do the same thing from the same movie. Remember, he was Bullseye in that terrible Daredevil movie. And, you know, he again, he might not have been the worst part about that movie, but again, it was not, not a good movie at all. So, could he now have a villainous redemption as Penguin in this Batman movie? Although, when you see Colin Farrell... Not just see, when you think of Colin Farrell, you say, okay, what Batman villain would you have him play? I'm guessing that Penguin is pretty down on the list. So this intrigues me a great deal because you don't really see him as with any aspects of that character, really. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't jive for me. And I know that maybe Matt Reeves is going for something a little bit different here, and my mind is certainly open because I never would have thought, again, I, I hate to bring this up a thousand times, I wouldn't have thought Heath Ledger for Joker in a million years either. And Colin Farrell certainly has some chops. I mean, he's got some skills. It's not like this guy can't act. I've always been a big Colin Farrell fan, actually, and wish he could have done more. But it's surprising to hear that he might be playing Penguin instead of, I don't know, there's any number of Batman villains, I could see. I mean, Victor Zaz comes to mind. I mean, I could actually see him playing, you know, maybe even the Riddler in a certain sense. But uh, Penguin is one of the last, maybe I would think of. So very, very intrigued to see, you know, if this does end up coming to pass, what kind of a Penguin 
we're going to get. Because again, I think that Matt Reeves is going for a completely different vibe with this Batman movie. And we could have Andy Serkis, by the way, as Alfred Pennyworth. That's another report that came out from multiple outlets, not just Deadline. And that I can absolutely see. And now we, I, I kind of still feel bad that Jeremy Irons never really got a chance to be Alfred because I think that Jeremy Irons would have been an amazing Alfred. But now, for the first time in the movies anyway, we finally have an Alfred that I feel I could really get his hands dirty and get in there and do something. Andy Serkis has shown, I mean, especially in Black Panther, and in plenty of other movies he's been in as well, that he can get the job done as far as action sequences are concerned. And we know that Alfred, and we've had plenty of evidence, whether it be on TV or in movies, that Alfred is no slouch, and Alfred has skills beyond just you know being the guy in the cave and being a top-notch butler. No, no, no. Alfred Pennyworth can get his hands dirty with the best of them. So let's get an Alfred Pennyworth that could actually throw down when necessary. And, and, and again, some of these guys never really got that chance, so you can't really fault them for that. But this would certainly give us a more potentially active Alfred Pennyworth with Andy Serkis. And again, I think that this... Is, I love Andy Serkis. So you want to get him in the Batman movie? I don't care if it's if it's a CG character or not. Yeah, make that happen because I would love to see Andy Serkis involved in the Batman. Now, here's something. I'm not sure how mad I am about this yet or not. So let's just talk about it and see. According to Bloomberg, Kevin Feige was talking to Bloomberg and said that Loki, the Loki series for Disney+, Plus, is going to tie into Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Now, that's not necessarily terrible, right? Okay, and those both come out in 2021. So, and Marvel, it's all connected, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I get it. But he also kind of, I'm not sure he outright said it, but that you will have to watch these Disney Plus series in order to follow what's going on in the Marvel Studios Cinematic Universe and vice versa. And I got to be honest. It's all connected. It always has been. Okay. And and I, I've made my peace with that. And that's just the way Marvel operates. And it certainly worked for them. Why would they stop doing it? But you never had to watch any of the movies. To be able to watch Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Or Agent Carter. I mean yeah sure. There's certainly things that you might not have gotten, or certain Easter eggs that would mean nothing. But as far as main plot points were concerned, didn't really matter a whole lot when wa- in watching those shows, and certainly not the Marvel Netflix series or any of the stuff that was on Freeform or anything like that, or, or Runaways, for that matter, on Hulu. You didn't need to watch. Now we're being told you need to subscribe to Disney Plus in order to know what's going on in some of these movies. And vice versa. And and it's not even so much the Disney Plus thing because seven bucks a month, that's not a tough ask, right? However, if you work that in reverse, if you're gonna need to see Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness to understand what's going on in, say, WandaVision or something, or or even the Loki series, that's a tougher ask because now you're asking someone to watch a movie in a timely manner that, you know, not everybody can get to the theater right away. 
Not everybody can afford to go to the theater. Have you taken more than one person to a movie lately? It ain't cheap. So you're talking about like a $50 ask, sometimes more in certain instances, to be able to understand what's going on in a series whose streaming service is like 7 8 bucks a month. So, I mean, it's all connected, it's all well and good, but if you're talking like you're ne- if we're really talking need here, you need to see this in order to know what's going on, that's not okay to me. Especially when you're talking about, you know, you're making decisions here on budgets and stuff like that. And yeah, I am going to play the family card, okay? I'm going to play that card. I'm going to play the, you know, you've got to make certain choices of what to do with your money. And, you know, you, you want to be able to enjoy these Marvel movies or you want to be able to have your kids enjoy them. But in order to do, to enjoy one thing, you have to consume something else and you have to pay for both. I'm not really cool with that. And and I'm not and I know that Marvel just assumes and maybe they should that people are going to consume all of this anyway. So what difference does it make? And maybe in a lot to a large degree that is correct. But again, it's it's how much you're okay with and how much you go, "Oh, all right. Well, I'll just pay extra to do this." Disney's been getting away with that for years. Think about it with this whole putting stuff in the vault thing and then, you know, you got to rebuy stuff on DVD and then Blu-ray and then 4K and then whatever the hell the next thing's going to be when 3D was a thing, blah, blah, blah. Disney been has been dipping into your pockets for extra money for years. And I know they're not doing it exclusively, but they do it better than anyone, quite frankly. And this is another instance of, of well, if you're okay with needing to buy Disney Plus in order to know what's going on to Mar- in Marvel movies that you're paying to go see, nah, I, I can't help you there because then what's the next step going to be? You're going to need to subscribe to Hulu because they're going to have shows on there as well. So you're going to have to make sure you know what's going on in those shows to find out what's going on in certain movies and so on and so forth. It could get to the point where, and call me crazy, that certain it could go the same way in the comics because with Feige in charge of everything now, you might have to consume more than you realize in order to understand what's going on in these movies or in the comics or what have you. So, again, tread lightly and be careful what you wish for because while this might not seem like a huge deal now, it could set a very interesting precedent going forward. This is something that popped out this week that intrigued me, and I wanted to know what you guys think of this. And that's a female-led Zorro series that could potentially be coming to NBC. Now, this is according to Deadline. This is part of a big CBS television studios deal that came out. And Zorro, basically, what the, what the synopsis so far is saying, it's a modern-day retelling of the Zorro mythology that follows Z, a female descendant of the warrior bloodline who will go to great lengths to protect the defenseless in her community. Now, Alfredo Barrios Jr., who did Magnum P.I. for CBS, is going to write and direct and serve ex- executive producer of this series. Now, it seems like this is something that's been tried and failed a couple of times already. Not like exactly, but certainly in a roundabout way. We haven't, haven't actually seen Zorro on the screen, really, since 2005. I know there's been some various other things that have happened but but we haven't seen Zorro since you know the days of Catherine Zeta Jones 
and Antonio Banderas. And I always wish that Catherine Zeta-Jones would have taken up that mantle after the fact and we would have gotten a female Zorro that way. That never happened, and I've never really gotten over it, quite frankly. And that's something that I think I think absolutely should have happened. But I digress because we're talking about the series. I, I, I think that this is definitely something that could work. I don't Modern-day Zorro and swords and stuff like that, I don't know... I don't know that that'll make a ton of sense. I, I hope it does. And then the other thing is, is that NBC being the home for this is another thing that gives me pause because it seems like NBC tries to do these kind of shows and they just can't make it work. Either it never sees the light of day or it just flat out doesn't work at all and it ends up getting one season and then we're done. So I don't know that NBC is the right home for this. And that doesn't necessarily mean it will stay on NBC. It could certainly be moved to another network. But I, I don't want to get my hopes up on this because I'm not sure that this is actually going to happen. I'll, I'll be very interested to see, casting-wise, what they do with this. I think that, you know, going... I mean, if you get a Latinx female lead, I think that would be really, really cool. I think that that would, that would really, you know, lend some authenticity to this role and to this series. And I mean, quite frankly, there aren't enough Latinx female leads on TV right now that are kicking ass. So I think that we need that a little bit more. So why not just go ahead and do that? It seems like a simple thing to be able to do. And again, as long as the stories are good, this show has a chance. I'm just really worried with NBC being the partner here that that might not be the right partner for a show like this. Get around things out now with a little bit of trailer talk. And you might remember a couple years ago hearing about a movie that was being made by Stephen Amell and Robbie Amell together. They were going to do an Indiegogo com- campaign for it. That has actually happened. And it's it's finally, finally going to see the light of day. The Code 8 movie is going to be coming on December the 13th. And they released a trailer. So I want to talk about a trailer a little bit here now. If you're not familiar with the movie, Robbie Amell plays Connor Reed. He's a man with powers who is trying to get to start, trying to help his sick mother, basically. But he's, you know, kind of had a little bit of a run-in with this militarized police force, and I should say that using powers is illegal too, by the way. And Stephen Amell comes along, and he plays Garrett. He's kind of a man who ultimately leads Connor into a series of increasingly dangerous. Crimes. Now, there's 4% of the population who have powers. They're looked down on. They're shunned. They're basically outlawed. And as you watch the trailer, it's like Garrett is a mentor of corruption for Connor. He's trying to steer him down a certain path. And Connor's, you know, got, he's kind of desperate and he needs to do what he needs to do for his mom. And his intentions are, are certainly pure. But, I mean, how long are they going to stay pure? I mean, whether or not they stay that way seems like to be the interesting part of this trailer because it almost looks like he's upping the ante as well and upping the aggression at certain points in this trailer. And things that he's being asked to do, are it seems like it's less and less on the up and up as you go. Not that that's not made completely clear. And it's almost like you see Garrett's character. It's almost like he knows what he has in Connor and thinks that you know he can use him to his advantage, and, and this is a partnership that could work out very well for him. Garrett definitely gives off that selfish, I'm ultimately in it for myself vibe, even though it seems like 
he's trying to do right by Connor and helping him discover what his powers can really do. Ultimately, it seems like it's for selfish gain, but I'm interested when I actually see the movie if that ends up being the case or not. But I mean, you want to talk about action. There's a ton of action in this trailer. The effects are really, really good. I mean, you want to talk about a movie that was made on not necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily call it a shoestring budget, but you're not talking about a major multi-million dollar blockbuster here. And the effects were damn good. I was impressed. Like Robbie Mel's character, Connor, has electric powers. It looks great. You see some other characters like you know, with melting, you know, like like almost a, a fire and lava type power. Stephen Amell's character, Garrett, looks like he's got some sort of telekinesis power. There's a lot of cool stuff happening. And by the way, this militarized police, I mean, they look good. I mean, it's a it's a good look. So you know, costume wise as well, everything looks bigger budget then you know it actually was. So you kind of get that big budget feel with characters that you with, with actors that you already know and love. How do you argue with that, right? So if you want to see Code 8, December the 13th, it is going to be available on demand. Pretty much every digital retailer that you love is going to have it. But there's going to be limited theatrical releases as well. You know, Los Angeles, Miami, Philadelphia, New York, just to name a few. If you want the full list, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Got that up there for you. And I'm sure more and more dates will be added at some point. So I'll try and keep you up to date on that. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, going to be talking about The Butcher of Paris. Brand new book from Dark Horse from writer Stephanie Phillips. She joins me next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Peter J. Tomasi, writer for House of Penance, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It just feels like this is an interview that was a long time coming, and I'll tell you why here in just a second, but you might recognize this name for a book that's going to be coming out like a true crime story. It's going to be really cool called The Butcher of Paris from Dark Horse Comics. It's going to be coming out in December. We have writer Stephanie Phillips joining us to talk about it. Stephanie, how you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the reason I say that this is a long time coming, Stephanie, is because it seems like it wasn't that long ago that I was doing a video talking about a Kickstarter you were doing called Kicking Ice, and now you've got just so many great things in the work. Talk about how much, how amazing of a year it ha- it's been for you so far. I feel really lucky. I mean, Kicking Ice was something that I wanted to do, and uh, you know, I always wanted to write comics, but having had things kind of explode in the way they have is great. Uh, I mean... I was just saying that I was a little like kind of overwhelmed and busy and like, I mean, that's definitely a good thing. I've got, I think five creator owned projects coming out in 2020 and um, some licensed work from bigger quote unquote bigger companies. <laughs> so um, I'm really, really, really excited because it's kind of like, this is what I wanted to do and seeing it actually happen is a great feeling. The audio air quotes mean she can't tell us what it is. But we'll we'll probably end up having her on the show again later to talk about those things. So we'll get to that. We'll get to that at some point. But let's talk about something we can talk about. The Butcher of Paris from Dark Horse. Because there's been a lot of true crime stories and a lot of stories about Nazi occupation over the years. Now, how would you say that The Butcher of Paris sets itself apart from those stories? I think Butcher is interesting in, like, the way that it initially stuck out to me. It's you know, an occupation story, it's a war story. But on top of these two things that I think are familiar themes or stories that we've read about, 
Now add in a serial killer and one of the most prolific serial killers in history. And then, I mean, his total count is actually unknown. Um, the There are estimates ranging anywhere from 60 deaths to 200. Um, and I think this is really interesting because we're dealing with the highest death toll of a war with World War II and then the highest death toll from this really horrific serial killer. And I just think it adds this really interesting element to a war story um, that I don't think we expect. And it almost becomes very personal as we follow this detective who's trying to deal with the occupation, trying to solve a case, trying to deal with the Nazis, trying to bond with his son. So it's almost like a very human, personal look at a small event that happened during a gigantic war. It's funny that you bring up the detective because those were, those are two characters that really interested me when I was reading this first issue with De- Detective Masu and his son Bernard. Now, what makes their dynamics so fun, and will that be a big part of the story going forward? Yes, absolutely. I really wanted to tell. I it is historically accurate, actually, that Bernard kind of accompanied his father to cases. He was a law student and um, kind of acted as like a sounding board for his dad, which you know is perfect for comics. Like, give him somebody to talk to. But Bernard is way more than just a somebody to talk to in the book because we are talking about so many horrific things. But I want at the center of this story to be this father son dynamic. So you know, there's huge death toll for a lot of different reasons throughout this book. It's a really dark period of history, but now we're kind of watching a really interpersonal dynamic trying to function in the midst of these horrific events, like just an average French citizen and his son trying to continue a relationship while kind of crazy things are happening. And, um, I, I really liked writing the father-son dynamic as well going along. Uh, my dad kind of got me into Sherlock as as a kid. So um, there's definitely a lot of like <laughs> me talking to my dad about trying to solve a mystery and things like that in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And now, as a matter of fact, my, my French is pretty horrible. So don't, don't, don't kill me for this one. But I mean, the horif- this is a horrific piece of history, like we were saying. Not many people actually know about it. So what made you actually decide to tell the tale of Marcel Pertois? I think it really came down to uh, you're dealing with a period of history where there's a lot of trust. Uh, I was actually, I just saw Jojo Rabbit last week, which for those of you who don't know, uh, it's Heiko Watiti's new movie uh, about a young boy whose imaginary friend is Hitler. He wants to be a Nazi, but his mom is helping to harbor Jews. And through getting to know somebody who's Jewish, like obviously you have this like kind of coming of age and heartwarming story about empathy. While our story is not comedic, in the way that that one is. Um, It made me think actually a lot about this idea of kind of connecting and how people in that time period had to be really trusting of one another. Like, you know, if you're looking for a way out of the city during the occupation, if you really desperately need a way out, your only path is to trust the people that say they can help you. And they're probably going to be strangers. And these kind of networks that were operating on a lot of that trust, now you have this character that comes in and really just demolishes that sense of trust for people that were trying to find a glimmer of hope and trying to find safety. Um, And he really exploited it and used it for profit, which is, uh, you know, I can't think of anything more miserable within a time period that's already pretty miserable. And it's just a really interesting, I think, look at just monsters and how sometimes, uh, you know, I, I really don't think I could have made up somebody that was as bad as Patois is. So, of course, history is all or real life is always more horrific than our imaginations, I suppose. 
No doubt about that. We're talking about The Butcher of Paris from Dark Horse Comics with writer Stephanie Phillips. going to be in your hands on December the 4th. Get your copy now. It's Stephanie, we see in the story that the Nazis seem to want to track down Patois as much as the police do, and there were some claims that Patois actually did take part in some resistance activities. Now, could that be something that we see get explored in the story? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, while we history already is written, you can go look up the, the case if you would like and kind of see how it ends. He does claim to be a resistance fighter throughout like the entire trial and and really any time he confronts police, he never admits to these crimes. But yes, there is definitely an element of the, the Nazis want to catch him just as much as the French do. They are not sure if he is uh, a resistance fighter. There's a lot of conflicting stories about him going around. The name sounds familiar you know, to people in the resistance because he was somebody that said he was helping people escape the city. And you know, we're talking about a time where there aren't really cell phones. So you can't call your aunt and be like, hey, did you make it out of the city safe? Right. You have to like assume like, OK, I never heard from them again. And they're in Argentina. <laughs> there's there's really not much in the way of being able to prove this. So, you know, a lot of people took him at his word and trusted him. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I was thinking about this when I was doing my research for this and kind of re-familiarizing re- myself with this actual true, true crime story. It's hard to take modern circumstances and place them in the past. But this is one instance where I think it's interesting to consider. How do you feel like Patois' story would have played out on social media from the crimes to the invasion to his eventual capture? Evasion, yeah. excuse me. That's an interesting one. I mean, I was definitely thinking about this in terms of social media would kind of change the way we trust somebody. Like, you know, back then, I don't think we had the way of maybe going and verifying records the way we do today. But at the same time, we still have the same ability to present ourselves as somebody we are not very easily online. Um, I mean, there's tons of stories of catfishing. There's the there was a serial killer that used dating apps to present himself as as a woman and then tried to kill people that came and responded to the app. So I mean there's there's a lot of instances of people doing something of presenting themselves as who they're not, uh, whether they're serial killers or just, you know, Instagram models. <laughs> um, I think it's a really interesting thing to think about how how easy it is today to be something that we're not, you know, obviously you couldn't go verify his records back then, right. but you know, he, he used his name. He, you know, the address was registered in his name. And, you know, I think there's a part in, in some of his mental illness that, uh, Maybe he really believed in his lie at some point, which I think a lot of us are able to convince ourselves of that as well. Like, you know, with social media kind of changes the way we view ourselves in the world as well. So uh, it's definitely interesting. I'm not sure I have a great answer for it, but it's it's something I thought about in terms of especially the fraud element. I think that's a pretty darn good answer, actually. So we'll just go with that. I, th- I think that works out perfectly. Now, one thing that caught my eye with this for sure was that I absolutely love Dave Johnson's cover for this yeah. first issue, and I think it makes a great first impression. So talk about his work along with Dean Cotts's work and how it really enhances the story. Dave, you know, obviously fantastic cover artist, and I know he's put a lot into these cover designs. Uh, it's been pretty collaborative. Like usually when he's working on a cover, we'll kind of go back and forth about the story elements. He reads the issue, and then we discuss you know, what kind of elements he might want to appear on the cover. And he kind of goes from there. And it's been really incredible issues one and two, which which you can see the covers for now are both just really heavy and symbolic, but also 
simple in a really strong way, um, which I think is great. And Dean also is a phenomenal artist, which you'll see come through in his his interiors with Jason Wordy on colors. And the two of them are just creating art. It's kind of nice to just keep watching it roll in and be like this each a uh, new page is somehow better than the last. I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> but yeah, they're they're incredible to work with. I got really lucky with such a cool creative team. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to like typecast yourself or anything here, but true crime stories are actually pretty darn cool. And, and this one is definitely one that I think really worked well for comics. Are there any others that maybe you've had kind of rattling around in your brain thinking, you know what, I'd love to get a chance to maybe talk about this someday. Yeah. Um, and I feel like they're all coming out in 2020. Um, yes. I more than true crime. I really like the, the historical fiction element. So for me, approaching this as somebody that like maybe hasn't delves as deeply into the true crime world as I know a lot of people have, I am more of a historical fiction writer and reader. Um, so that was kind of my approach to things was just very heavily researched and, you know, creating a world around the history that readers could relate to. I'm a big fan of Eric Larson, who did Devil in the White City, uh, In the Garden of the Beast, which are historical books like he doesn't really do any of the fiction part but it it almost reads like you're reading fiction because you become so invested in the characters uh like in the garden of the beast is about the american ambassador in nazi germany and you would think like oh a biography but it's really not you're reading the story of somebody that brought his family to germany because he was excited about his appointment as ambassador and now it's the nazis so right. Like, you know, things you wouldn't think about. It's a really interesting perspective on the time period where I think you can go and look up articles and things like that and read all the numbers and figures of World War II. And these are statistics, but I think kind of the way that somebody like Larson approaches it gives you a little bit more of a personal flavor of the time period, which I think helps us connect to history. And I think that's what helps us learn from history, not the kind of like lecture of memorizing how many people died in a battle or something like that. And that's kind of the approach I wanted to take with Butcher as well, which is, you know, there is a true crime element. Uh, we're also getting into elements of the war and really following this character that we can empathize with as he's dealing with a lot of these historical events and, you know, politics of the time. Definitely. Now, Stephanie, before I let you go, we're going to land things on a little bit of a lighter note because I know you're a big hockey fan. I also know that you're an animal lover, though. So what would you say would be more entertaining, the cat that ran on the field during Monday Night Football this past week or a cat finding its way onto the ice during the Stanley Cup Finals? Oh, man, I am such a I'm already a huge fan of the cat that was on the football field. He's got his own little like uh, video segment on yeah. ESPN already. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so thrilled. Um, I mean, Stanley Cup cat would be great. There have been cats on the ice before that have been got, been adopted. I can't remember what one was called. I want to say he ran on the ice during the uh, Sharks game and they they named him something that was like a pun on one of the players names. But cats on the ice are great. And now NHL teams keep adopting puppies, which I think is great. There Tampa Bay, they have their own little um, he's a golden lab. His name is Bolt and he has his own Twitter account, which is the best Twitter account. So <laughs> animals and sports are such a good combination. I don't even try to compete with the animal Twitter accounts. I really don't. I just know I'm never going to hit that plateau. And I just, I've accepted that now and moved on with my life. I did something really dumb last week and I started a Twitter account for my cat. <laughs> so he 
I, I keep referring to it as like, oh, look what Samson posted. And my family's like, you realize your cat is not actually the one posted. <laughs> you realize you're plugging that you're plugging that right now. So go ahead and do it. <laughs> I'm trying his handle, I think, is Sam Maine Coon because he's a Maine Coon cat. He's giant and fluffy. His name's Samson. It's pretty ridiculous. He just reached something like 60 followers in a few days. And I'm pretty proud of him, even though, you know, he's not really helping me all that much. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's the whole I mean, you know, famous. I mean, going viral, you, you never know. And it's and it's very likely with animals. I mean, come on. I mean, how much I mean, Monday Night Football Cat's going to be a legend for decades yes. now. And, and maybe Samson, the same thing will happen. You never know. He's pretty great. I'm just hoping I really think he should be a social media influencer. So that's that's really my goal in life. I publish some comics and, you know, I can die happy if my cat becomes a social media influencer. There you go. Now, here's one thing that Stephanie is publishing. That's The Butcher of Paris, number one. She's going to be available from Dark Horse Comics in your local comic book shops and digital retailers on December the 4th. The reason I want to tell you about this now in this dire circumstances here, people, because the final order cutoff date for retailers is November the 11th, so make sure you're going and telling your local comic book shop you want the Butcher of Paris number one so they can order enough copies. You want to you want to go into your shop and it not be there and you've got to wait? You don't want that to happen, so make sure you reserve your copy now. It's writer Stephanie Phillips. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Well, thank you so much for having me. There's one line that Stephanie said that really stuck out to me, and that is she probably couldn't have even dreamed up a character that was more evil than Marcel Patois or something along those lines. And yeah, you're talking about a serial killer who lured people with the promise of freedom and leaving Nazi-occupied Germany or Paris or wherever you happen to be, only to end up being chopped up into little pieces and incinerated. That's that's pretty evil. That's about as evil as evil gets right there. I can't wait to see, even though we know the history... Where is this story going to go and how many more things about the story that haven't really been explored are going to be explored in The Butcher of Paris, which, of course, is going to be hitting the shelves from Dark Horse Comics on December the 4th. Final order cutoff this Monday, November the 11th. So make sure you're getting to your local shops and letting them know you want your copy of The Butcher of Paris number one and put the whole series in your pull box while you're at it. Read the first issue and it is good stuff. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Stephanie Phillips for joining me this week to talk about The Butcher of Paris and also a bunch of other stuff as well. Follow her cat on Twitter, by the way. <laughs> follow Samson. I'm sure it'll be an entertaining follow. And make sure you're also going to MacWeldon.com, supporting our sponsor this week. I mean, top premium menswear. I wear my stuff all the time. Enter code D-N-P-O-D at checkout for 20% off. Your first order, you will not be sorry you did at MacWeldon.com. Also, follow us on social media at DownAndNerdy757 on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook.com slash DownAndNerdy. And make sure you're joining us for our Arrowverse watch parties on TV Co. at DownAndNerdy on TV Co. Get the TV Co. app at your favorite app store. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.